And as they go, I'm going to ask the rest of you to pray with me. Father, thank you again for this morning and for the opportunity we have to worship you through music, uh, through giving, through fellowship together, and now through the study of your word together. We would ask that you would empower us through the power of your spirit. You would illumine us so that we can understand and that you would allow us to be more impressed with how great you are and the great assurances that are ours in Christ, that this would be more than a religious exercise for us, but this would be a time where we are grappling with these great profound truths of your word that has that have to do with Christ and your spirit and your perfect plan for us as believers. Bless our time for your name's sake we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Romans chapter eight, where we're going to be continuing our discussion about security and assurance and how we can be sure if we're Christians that God will save us, that He will keep His promises. So we continue this theme of assurance. As you turn to Romans 8, and if you're new to the Bible, you can find a page number in the bulletin and then look at the Bible that we gave you and you should be able to find Romans. It would be helpful. But before we talk about assurance, I think it's maybe a little awkward but honest to start by talking about how Callous we can become when it comes to this matter of assurance and how we can uh, be a little bit jaded, a little bit suspect when people make promises to us. The other day, I took one of my kids to the bank and uh, I was going there with my child and, uh, and, and she was going to open up a bank account. And so there was a little discussion about putting her money in the bank. And was it going to be safe or is it not going to be safe? And I assured her it was going to be safe. We talked about the FDIC. And before you knew it, I had to add a footnote (laughs) and say, generally speaking, we would assume that it's going to be safe and uh, a little bit of a qualifier there, even for something like that. I've had to explain to my kids as well, since I'm using them as an illustration at this point, about why certain promises that have been made to us in certain business dealings have been broken. And even though assurances were made, uh, they proved to not be sure at all. Sometimes we go to weddings, and, and typically at a wedding, something is said in those vows that say something along the lines of, till death do us part. It doesn't always turn out that way, even though it's a big promise. Even when we have baptism services here at Omaha Bible Church, and and it's our custom to have people give their testimony on how they became a Christian and what their intents are, uh, intentions are as far as professing Christians. And and there are times when people say things about wanting to follow Jesus with all of their heart, and it's their desire to do this, and how everything's changed now. and, And yet at times, sometimes we find that those assurances really aren't so sure. And the list could go on. You could share instances, and so could I, and the list could go on and on where people say things, they make big promises, and they break them. Let's be honest. God makes big promises. Romans chapter 8 is arguably the greatest chapter about assurance of salvation and the security of the believer anywhere in the Bible. But if you've lived long enough, you've become a little bit like me and perhaps a bit jaded, a little bit calloused, and you think, 
Well, a lot of big promises have been made to me before, and they don't always prove to be true. The big question then is, what makes this any different from some of those other sure things? In two words, the Son. The Son. In one word, Christ. In one word, Jesus. You see, here's where everything is different compared to those other promises. Those other promises have to do with things that are not yet realities. In Romans chapter 8, we learn this great promise from God that if you're really a Christian, you are securely a Christian. It rests not upon something that you do. It rests not even on something that God will do. It rests upon something that God has done. Historic reality. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Even though we're far past that, it's all grounded there. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are united with Christ. That's what in Christ Jesus means. We've learned already in Romans that happens by faith in Him. And everything we've seen so far in Romans ties this not to something that Christ is going to do, it ties our assurance, it ties this matter of in Christ Jesus to something that He has done. A historic, objective, outside of you reality. That is the ultimate basis for our assurance and that's why I don't have to be so skeptical. And it's why I find this refreshing as a promise. I want you to look at one other passage that has to do with this. It's just a great cross-reference to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and, and I just can't resist. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. If you just turn a couple of books to the right, past 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians, it's a great reminder to us, especially as we have many promises made to us. The promises are broken. What makes God's promises any different? Well, it's this reality of what Christ has already done. And I absolutely... I love 2 Corinthians 1 when it comes to this matter. How can we be so sure? Well, Romans 1, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God, I'm going to insert parenthetically, all the promises of God in the Old Testament, all the promises of God in the New Testament, how about even Romans chapter 8, all the promises of God find their yes there are the two words I mentioned. I said in Christ. How about this? In Him. That is why. It is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Every assurance ultimately finds its yes and its amen in the historic work of Christ. It's fantastic. It's great. And so as we talk about assurance... As we talk about security in Romans chapter 8, and this morning we'll look at verses 14 to 17, just know that it's grounded in verse 1. It's grounded in the work of Christ. That's what makes this different from the FDIC. That's what makes this different from uh, professing uh, Christians even. That's what makes it different from absolutely everything else we know when it comes to promises. What we'll do this morning is move on in this study, and we'll look at eight assurance-granting blessings. Eight assurance-granting blessings that all true Christians enjoy. Eight assurance-granting blessings that all true Christians enjoy. Or eight great blessings 
that give all true Christians assurance, however you'd like to word it. And we'll look at this in verses 14 to 17. By way of conclusion, we have a great and fitting conclusion today, and it will be celebrating the Lord's Supper. So that will be, in a sense, our yes and our amen to these promises because we're going to remember in the way He told us to His significant and historic work. But the agenda today is to look at these great blessings that encourage us as Christians when it comes to assurance. I do word it on purpose that all true Christians enjoy because even last time in our study, we do have if statements in Romans chapter 8 as well as throughout the Bible. It never assumes that because someone says they're a Christian that they are. But if you really are a Christian, you should be sure that you're a Christian and you can be blessed and have great joy even as a result of this passage. Let's look at number one. The first assurance-granting blessing that all true Christians enjoy, number one, is sonship. Sonship. Look with me, if you would, at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, the context is going to tell us, and we'll get to that part later, but context is going to tell us that's synonymous with being a Christian, based upon verse 13. All who are led by the Spirit of God, that happens to all Christians. All who are Christians are sons of God. This is no small thing. All who are led by the Spirit, all who are Christians, are sons of God. This is huge because it has to do with being an heir, which we'll talk more about later. This has to do with being in the place of privilege. How about this? This has to do with having direct access to the Father. If you are a son of God, you have direct access to God. You don't have to go through some other sinner to try to get your way there. Those are the great things about being a son. And by the way, this is true for you if you're a Christian. Whether you are a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, if you are a Christian, you, the Bible says, are a son of God. And so let's not change it to try to make it politically correct and change, we're going to sing about how great it is, how we're all sons and daughters of God. That's true on one level, but you're missing the theological weightiness of this and why the Bible says it this way. If you're a man or a woman, if you're a Christian, you are a son of God. Think about this from an ancient culture perspective. The son is the heir. The son is in the position of most significant privilege. And the Bible's saying you're a son. You're in that spot if you're a Christian. Direct access to the Father. This is a great blessing that should give us, if we are Christians, great assurance. We're going to talk about how we're children of God, and that's good and wonderful. But this is even better in one sense. You're not just in the family if you're a Christian. That's good. I'm not trying to detract from that. If you're a Christian, you're a son. Inheritor. Heir. Blessed in a unique way. This is awesome. It's even more awesome, if I can say that. Let's say awesomer. For those of you who are sleeping, you'll think, ah, he's got bad English. Well, now you're listening to me. <sighs> when you stop and realize the fact that you've gone to son status from status of opposition. 
right? We even learned about that last time in Romans. Look, look at Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. This is us before we're Christians. This is true for me. This is true of you. Verse 7 says in chapter 8, For the mindset on the flesh, which is an unbelieving mind, an unconverted mind, is hostile to God. That's, that's my background. That's my testimony. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Verse 8 says, Those who are in the flesh, those who are unconverted, cannot please God. What a great contrast in our context. Cannot please God. Hostile to God. Sometimes translated enemy of God. Son of God? How did this happen? Because I really tried hard and I'm a good person. Didn't you read verses 7 and 8? No, you didn't really try hard. It even says cannot. All of this is built upon what we've already been learning in Romans, and it's all based upon the work of Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've already learned that happens by faith. Enemy, hostile, cannot, son. This is meant to encourage Christians. This is meant to encourage you. It's meant to encourage me. This is how great Christ is. This is how amazing the love of the Father is. This is, ama- this is gr- uh, amazing how powerful the work of the Spirit is. We're sons, inheritors, heirs. A good contrast I, I wrote down in my notes here is contrasting verses 14, sons of God with Ephesians 2.3, children of wrath. I was a child of wrath and now I'm a son. That brings sureness. That brings praise, no doubt, but it comes from sureness. It's a blessing from God. And one that should encourage us. Sons of God. Second, assurance-granting blessing that all true Christians enjoy. Number two, Holy Spirit-leading. Holy Spirit leading. Now we're going to go back to verse 14 and pick up the first part of that. Where it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. First glance, just reading it like that, you you might think, well, apparently there are some Christians who are led by the Spirit and some Christians who aren't led by the Spirit. Don't think that's the intent. Neither do most Bible interpreters because we're supposed to read verse 14 after verse 13. Verse 13, if we go back, is comparing unbelievers and believers. Look with me, if you would, at 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. That's describing an unbeliever. We looked at that last time in detail. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Who dies? Unbelievers. Who lives? Believers. And he says, those who live, believers, are those who put to death the deeds of the body. That's synonymous with what he says in 14. He just says it a different way. He says, led by the Spirit. Those who put to death the deeds of the body, he's describing Christians. Goes on to the next verse. Those who are led by the Spirit, Christians. It's not that complicated when you read the flow. So what I'm suggesting to you is this second assurance-granting blessing is Holy Spirit leading. And that all Christians are led by the Spirit. We're Holy Spirit led. Now, I don't always feel Holy Spirit led. I don't know exactly how this works, 
But based upon the flow, I'm concluding that, that this is describing Christians, not special, second-level, super-uber-Christians. Christians are led by the Spirit, and that should give us assurance. It's not something we're trying for. This is something that's a reality. Obviously, there's more involved than just saying it's true and not doing anything, not efforting at all. The Spirit wrote the Bible based upon 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, working through individuals. Um, We're called to study the Bible. We're called to do what the Bible says. We're called to meditate upon what the Bible says. We're called to preach and admonish with the Bible so people will do what the Bible says. So obviously when we say led by the Spirit, it's not an isolation from everything else. It's in concert with what the Bible says. Somehow it's going to work together. So we don't want to take this out of the context of all of Scripture. But nevertheless, it does say, led by the Spirit. If I'm a Christian, the Holy Spirit leads me. It's pretty good. It's pretty good even if I don't always feel like the Holy Spirit leads me. I liken it to GPS. And by the way, I like GPS. If you don't have a GPS, you should get a GPS. This is going to be an infomercial, okay? It slices, it dices, it juliennes. You know, I feel like Ron Popeil, who I think just died. But anyway, my favorite thing, we like our GPS so much, we we named it. It's a Magellan, so we call it Madge. Anyway, so Madge is a a good thing. You need one. Anyway, (laughs) here's my favorite feature, almost favorite feature. There's a little icon that you can always find, even if the rest of the stuff's complicated, and it's the home icon. And you push home, and it automatically figures out how to get you home. We could be in the middle of Nowheresville, Kansas, like we were yesterday. Turn on Madge, push home, gets us home. It's pretty good. I love that. I love that. Well, you know what? The Holy Spirit leads us. I don't always know what it looks like, I don't always know, you know where my efforting and His working coincide and work together because I'm trying, but I know the Spirit's leading me. I'm trying to do what the Bible says, which is what the Spirit's revelation is to me. But at the same time, I know the Spirit is leading me. I said it's almost my favorite feature. My favorite feature of the GPS is when we're driving up our street and it says, you have arrived. <laughs> I love it when people tell me I've arrived. My wife has never told me that I've arrived. <laughs> it's the best. You have arrived. And I think I say back to Madge, yes, I have. <laughs> and so if no other reason for your self-esteem, you should get one. But anyway. <laughs> the analogy breaks down, but it's not a bad one. The Spirit of God leads you if you're really a Christian. There is a supernatural built-in GPS that came in connection with regeneration. And it says, you have arrived, even though you haven't. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's Romans 8, right, toward the end, when we get into 29 and 30, where it says glorified that hasn't even happened yet which is my synonym for you have arrived but you haven't yet 
But the Spirit of God leading you assures that you will arrive there. So much so that God says in His Word, Romans 8, 29 and 30, right? Right in there. Glorified. Pretty good, huh? Good illustration too, by the way. If you use it, you have to give me credit. (laughs) There's going to be a fee involved for that. If you're a Christian, the Spirit leads you. That's encouraging. It doesn't mean I, I can ignore everything else, but doing the other things I'm supposed to do, like having my Bible open, knowing what it says, the Spirit is going to lead me, and that's supposed to encourage me. Okay, number three. The third assurance granting blessing that all true Christians enjoy is fear elimination. Fear elimination. The elimination of fear. We see this in verse 15. Look what it says in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Maybe this was even a problem with these believers he's addressing. Whether it is or it isn't isn't the important part, but it could be a problem. Right? You say you're a Christian, but but you're living in fear. And he's saying, you know what? You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. This doesn't make any sense for you to be afraid. He doesn't say afraid of what, but I would assume, based upon what we've read in Romans, it's not even the question of afraid of what, it's afraid of who or whom. I mean, everything so far up until this point in time would point toward, there there would only be one thing that Christians would be afraid of, and it's not even a thing, it's a person, even though they shouldn't be. How about a God who is righteous? How about a God who is holy? How about a God who says, even at the very lead of Romans 1.18, who is wrathful and His wrath is revealed against, uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, suppre- who, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know, you're thinking, that's who God is. And then you're learning about justification, you know, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 5. Justification is... is, is is where God declares sinners righteous based upon the work of Christ, even though you're not righteous, right? Well, then all of a sudden, and that's true and that's biblical, but maybe the more you're learning about justification and how it's Christ's righteousness credited to you, it's not really yours, you're not actually righteous, salvation is not by your works, and all of a sudden, before you know it, I could go back to Romans 1.18 and say, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You know what? I, I, I'm still that person in one sense. I'm afraid of this God. And he's saying, look, it's good you're getting justification figured out, but you're not under His wrath anymore, and there's no longer any condemnation, and you didn't receive the, the spirit of slavery to, to fall back into fear. You're making inappropriate connections in your theology. Glad you're learning, but I've got to help you out a little bit here. Christians aren't supposed to fear God anymore. They're not supposed to fear His wrath. They're not supposed to fear His judgment. Stop doing that. By the power of the Spirit, you don't have to be afraid. And he'll explain why in just a moment. You know, for an unbeliever to not be afraid of God is for that unbeliever to be horribly misinformed about who God is. If they had any inkling, any truthful understanding of who God is, they would be afraid and they should be afraid. But for a believer to be afraid of God and His wrath, it doesn't make sense. And it's a blessing. 
But when you stop and think about who God is, biblically, not according to, you know, the gospel according to Oprah, right? You think biblically who God is. You should be afraid. If it weren't for that. If it weren't for the Spirit of God applying the work of the Son to you. And if it weren't for what we're about ready to say, but make no mistake about it, you should be afraid of God, you know? I've read his file. <laughs> it's called Romans 1, 2, and 3. But he's saying we don't need to be afraid anymore. We don't need to be afraid. And he's going to explain why. Let's move to the fourth assurance granting blessing. He'll explain why we, we shouldn't be afraid. Why does it make any sense for Christians to be afraid? Number four, the spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption. Verse 15 goes on to say, he's explaining why there shouldn't be any fear because he says, but you have received, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery unto fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Oh, that's why I don't have to be afraid. Because I've received the spirit of adoption as son. Okay, I'm, I'm in the family. He's just reiterating this reality. I'm a son and I've been adopted into his family. And, and anytime anybody talks about adoption, you can think about how, how gracious the adopter is. Right? It's great. But what is adoption? Taking someone who, who biologically is not in your family, but saying, you know what? I want you to be in my family and you make them legally part of your family with all of the privileges and all of the blessings. They're part of the family. This is great. And it's a great picture of grace. But it's even better when we're talking about salvation. Because stop and think about it for a second. I don't need to be afraid because I've received the spirit of adoption as a son. But on a human level, it's wonderful. It's great to see because it reminds us of how great God is. But it's even 10 bazillion times better than we might imagine. Because it's not like this when God adopts us. It's not like, you know, somehow somebody, you know, God sends away for a picture. And he sees a picture. Oh, there's Pat. Isn't he cute? You know, the dimples. So innocent. Oh, Pat is just such a, just, I think I'm going to adopt him. Oh, bless my heart. You know, <laughs> that's all great when that actually happens, but that, that couldn't be how it is with God. That couldn't, it's not how it is with God. Even in Romans 8, in our chapter. He's talked about hostile to God. That's bad. Enemy of God. Not doing anything right. That's who, who, who God, God sees a delinquent in Pat. He sees me for who I really am. And here's where I'm going with this, and this will help. So when I learned that I've been adopted, I don't have to be afraid. I've been adopted into God's family uh, uh, through the Spirit and, and, and as a son I know full well, and so do you if you're really a Christian, that God's adopting you was not based upon anything in you. It was based upon who He is. He's gracious and loving. And see, that breeds, that instills sureness. See, my security is not based upon my performance or lack thereof and my maintaining my loveliness. Because I'm so cute. Because I wasn't. Nor were you. It's based upon who He is. He's faithful to His promises. He's gracious. He's loving. And He has, through the power of the Spirit, adopted us, made us 
part of his family. And that's totally different from the sentimentality. And you know what? I, I, in one sense, I apologize if I squashed, on your, squashed your perspective of what it means for God to adopt you. But I'm telling you the truth. And what I'm telling you is actually going to be better because it's actually going to give you sustained assurance when you blow it and you're not so lovely. It was never based upon your loveliness to begin with. It was based upon God and His grace and His loving kindness. And that gives Pat, the sinner, (laughs) assurance. It's great. And it makes me want to worship Him and glorify Him for His graciousness. Number five, a fifth assurance-granting blessing that all true Christians enjoy. Let's call it the Abba factor or the Daddy factor. Not Abba, the 70s music group, for those of you who are older than I am. Abba, from the Aramaic Aramaic word that means Daddy or Father. We see this here in verse 15. Not you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom? By that spirit. Because we're adopted, because we're sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. When he says cry, the idea there is, this is what's natural. This is just what you do. And here's where it gets pretty interesting. You now, because you're adopted as a son, you used to be an enemy, but now, because you're a son... Through adoption, you act like you're a son. Now, how about this? You naturally cry out to God as daddy, which, by the way, is something that happens supernaturally. Because supernaturally, the Spirit of God adopts you into the family of God, right? So supernaturally, you're made a son. And as a result of that supernatural work, now you naturally do what is contrary to your nature. You naturally say, Abba, Father, Dad, it's great. It's great. And and you know what else is pretty great about this is by me as a son saying to God, Almighty, right? Transcendent, right? Righteous, holy. Dad, I look like a son. In fact, in one way, I resemble the Son. Right? What did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, Abba, Father. He said this very same thing. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's great. As he was facing his most trying hour ever, cries out to the Father. You'll never face that hour if you're a Christian. Never, ever, ever, ever. You'll never face that hour. But what's the natural response if you're a son when you face a difficulty? Dad, help me. Which is absolutely, in one sense, 
unthinkable in light of everything we've learned about who God is apart from Christ in Romans. But because of Christ's gracious work, because of the power of the Spirit applying His work to us, we're now in the position of family member, son, adopted by the Spirit, and we say, Help, Dad! Isn't that good? It's great. You know, and he's not like our earthly dads either. As good as some of them might have been. Or as good as some of them are. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, loves perfectly, it's assuring, right? It's meant to be assuring. It's great. This is not presumptuous to call out to God and say, Dad, Father, it's not presumption that causes this, it's adoption that causes this. This is what we do now, naturally. We cry out this way. Before we move on, just as a footnote, sometimes it's said that the Jews never called God father or something so intimate. Actually, there's Jewish writings that would, would indicate that sometimes they did. I don't mean to have a sermon spoiler here, but uh, we actually have Jewish writings where it does actually happen. It's just not normal. It's not frequent. But by God's grace, He's been showing Himself to sinners for a long time. And so we don't need to help the Bible out we have to be careful of things like always and never when it comes to history. So if you need to alter your Sunday school lesson, um, just do a little extra research. You say, I'm not trying to take away from this. It's extraordinary. It's special. It's only ever by the grace of God that this happens. But believers have been able to cry out to God since they've been believers because God is gracious. Number six, a sixth... Assurance granting blessing is the internal witness of the Spirit. We can do this one quickly. The internal witness of the Spirit. We see this in verse 16. Look with me there if you would. The Spirit Himself. For emphasis, right? The Spirit Himself. You know? The third member of the Trinity. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How does that work? I don't really know. No one can really explain how this works. But somehow, what it says is true. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Somehow, the Spirit of God, who, by the way, indwells believers, somehow the Spirit of God communicates with my spirit to bring assurance in my life that I'm really a Christian. The supernatural work of the Spirit of God gives me assurance that I'm really a Christian. There's something inside me that tells me I'm a Christian. And that should give me assurance. And I'm going to say before you in front of witnesses, God, thank you for giving me your Holy Spirit who affirms my spirit that I'm really a Christian. And by this point in time, some of you guys are getting really nervous. And you want to give me a theology lesson. 
You quote Bible verses to me. I understand. Because what we immediately want to say is, well, there are a lot of people who think they're Christians and they're not. I'm with you. I agree. Well, you forgot about Matthew 7. I didn't. Jesus himself says there are a lot of people who think they're Christians, who say they're Christians, and they're not Christians. Read Matthew 7. But right here, verse 16, is nevertheless true. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How about this? This is true, and you need to let it be true, and I need to let it be true. Lest we rob God of the glory that He deserves for giving us such a good gift. The internal witness of the Spirit. But it's not the only source of assurance in the Bible, right? Because we're learning all kinds of sources of assurance, even in Romans. Even in Romans 8, you've got if statements. So here's what we would want to say. That's what I'd want to say, because I'm going to say it. And I have a microphone. (laughs) We'd want to be biblically balanced. The Spirit of God who indwells believers assures believers that they're Christians. Praise be to God for that great source of assurance. But there are other sources of assurance that should be benefited from, if you will, and looked at in concert with this one. Yes, we should look at 1 John that describes that Christians as people who believe the objective truth about Christ. And if you don't believe the objective, the actual truth about Christ, then you shouldn't be sure, no matter how you feel inside. Because whatever makes you, you feel that way inside must not be the Spirit of God, because why would the Spirit of God disagree with His own book? And why would the third person of the Trinity disagree with the second person of the Trinity, right? It doesn't make any sense. He's calling for balance. But where we, our default mode, our Omaha Bible Church default mode, my default mode, sorry for being such a leader, (laughs) is probably to forget about this verse. And we shouldn't forget about it. It's a blessing from God. There's just a question about how can we tell if this is really a spirit affirming me or not. Well, let's start looking at some of the other tests. Like... The tests are in First John. Okay, number seven and eight. Let's get these wrapped up now. Number seven, airship, not a i r s h i p. I made up a word though. Airship, h e i r s h i p. That we are heirs, as in inheritors. It's an assurance-granting blessing. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 's typically this kind of verbiage airship verbiage is in connection with when the king, if we're talking about royalty, dies. But here he says, heirs of God, and then he goes on to say, and fellow heirs with Christ. So it's different because we're, we're obviously not talking about God dying. So what is he talking about? So, so he obviously alters the image a little bit from the norm. 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, the idea is, is you are in the place of inheritance. You are the inheritor. You, you, you are in the place of great privilege like son, right? Like child. You are going to be the one who is given all of the riches. You are going to be the one who is in privileged status, privileged position. You are in the best position you can be in. That's the idea. And perhaps, because he's so bold, saying, heirs of God. I mean, even theologians say, that's a bold piece of imagery. What? Heirs of God? Maybe to help us understand a little bit better, he says, fellow heirs with Christ. And that's still hard, but we can kind of sort of start getting our mind around it because he's the incarnate son and he came here. And then we start putting the pieces together and it makes more sense. And we, we remember passages like Revelation chapter 20 where Christ is ruling and reigning. And it says in Revelation 20 that we will reign with Him. We, 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 are, we are vice regents ruling and reigning with Christ. Or 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 talks about reigning with Christ. Or how about Hebrews 1-2? It's probably my favorite as far as a cross-reference is concerned, because Hebrews 1-2 says Christ is the heir of all things. You want to know how good this deal is? <laughs> He's the heir of everything, and here it says in our Bibles, we're fellow heirs with Christ. I can't even begin to get my little pea brain around it. I'm an heir with Christ, and it all belongs to Him. And then you, see, you read Colossians and you see all the wisdom and knowledge. And I mean, he's the king of kings. And if you're a Christian, by the grace of God, the Bible says you are a fellow heir with him. And it's nonsense to think, well, I've deserved it. <laughs> no. It shows how great God is. And it shows again why security and assurance are so amazing and how, how wonderful they are because God is doing this for us as sinners. Heirs with Christ. And then finally, an eighth assurance granting blessing. All true Christians enjoy. Here's the curveball. Suffering. You see, I'm glad this is in one verse too, by the way. In verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And it's, it's just moving forward. It couldn't get any better. And fellow heirs with Christ. And just so there's no misunderstanding here, just so none of you start sending checks to TVN, right? Just so none of you somehow get swept up in the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. In a sense, you kind of feel like the brakes, you know, just got stomped on. You know? And you think, this is a bummer. I knew there was some kind of caveat. You know, there's always strings attached. Don't look at it that way. No longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ, united with Him, this is just on a road to being logically consistent. If you're united with Christ, He's a son. You're a son. 
why wouldn't you and your life look something like he and his life? It's not a stretch. How about Jesus saying things like, a servant is not above his master. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. How about Jesus saying things like, unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, you're not worthy of me. How about Jesus saying things like, hate in association with parents and in-laws and children at times, right? Because of your following Him. Oh. Okay. It makes sense that I would look something like Jesus if I'm united with Him. And if I'm really a Christian and I stand up for the gospel and I say what's true about Jesus, there's going to be suffering for righteousness' sake, like First Peter talks about, like the Gospels talk about. It's just part of what happens. How about this? God gives us suffering for righteousness' sake as a gift to bring about assurance. How can I know if I'm really a Christian? Well, there's a lot of different ways. But one way is if you suffer for righteousness. If you stand up for the truth about Christ and the gospel and people are upset with you about it. It's one of, it's not the only way, it's one of the ways that God ministers to you to show you that, you know what, you do resemble my son. Look what they did to him. Okay. It does give me assurance. If you just listen to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 and 30, I think it's quite helpful on this matter. It's been helpful to me over the years. It's really stood out to me as far as helpfulness is concerned. The Apostle Paul writes, in fact, you could use it as a cross-reference to our verse. He writes, For it has been granted, there's our word for grace, okay? It's the word for grace. It has been granted to you that... For the sake of Christ, you should not only believe. It's been granted to you to believe, but also to suffer for His sake. It's a gift from God that I never ask for. But where it happens, I see, you know what? I guess this makes sense. I stood up for the gospel, and while some got converted, you know, and and said, yeah, that's right, others said, You're an idiot. What's interesting too, Paul goes on to say in verse 30 of Philippians 1, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He's not talking about interpersonal conflict or bad people skills or bad social skills or or suffering uh, in that case through illness or anything like that. He's not talking about generic suffering. He's talking about the conflict you saw in me. I stood up against the false teachers who were saying it's Jesus and, and you saw what happened. And I'm telling you, Philippian believers, is what he's saying. It's been granted to you to suffer for His sake, just like it's been granted to me. Let it be a source of assurance. You're really a Christian. You're really standing up for the gospel. Is what he's getting at. Here's what I'm encouraged by. I'm encouraged by this study of Romans 8 
because now I'm able to get assurance or receive assurance from certain blessings from God that I'd either forgotten about or didn't know about. Right? I hope that's been happening in your life. You know, no one is going to write a song about assurance again, or I say it again, you know, based upon verse 17. You know, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's a dud. That's not going to sell any copies. And while I love Blessed Assurance, this is one of my favorite, favorite songs. I'm not putting the song down in any way, shape, or form, but we're drawn toward those things that sound beautiful and wonderful and comforting, and then we forget about what the Bible actually says sometimes, and it's good for us to study the whole thing and say, you know what, I've been missing out on a source of assurance. I've just been getting beat up at work because I've been standing up for the gospel, and man, this just stinks. Well, it does, and I don't like it either. But you know what? It's a source of assurance. You look like the sun. And so you look like you're a son. And you look like somebody's been adopted into the family. And now all of a sudden, perspective changes on things. And now all of a sudden, what's bad can be used for good. Hope that helps. It helps me. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the fact that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And thank you for the fact that we even now have an opportunity to add our yes by obeying the Son and eating bread and drinking wine as he indicated as we acknowledge the objective, perfect, atoning sacrifice of Christ. We love him and we love to worship him and we're so thankful that ultimately all of our security and assurance are traced back to him. In Jesus' name, amen.